0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I hear from writers who say, well, I'm quitting. I was rejected five times. Well, you can't quit after five times. You can take a, a break and then go back into the game because only you get to decide when it's over. Not a publisher, not an agent, only you get to decide that.
1: Hello, writers! Welcome back to Write Off, the podcast about writing rejection in all its forms, from self doubt to books not selling. I'm your host, Francesca Steele, a journalist and writer based in London. And if you want to know more about my own experience with writing rejection, you can hear about that in the first season. My guest today is the fabulous Bonnie Garmus. Despite wanting to be a writer all her life, Bonnie's debut Lessons in Chemistry was published when she was 64. The book, about Elizabeth Zott, a formidable 1950s chemist and reluctant cooking show host, has gone on to sell in 40 countries, has been sitting on the bestseller list for months, and is being made into a TV show. But before this, Bonnie wrote several books, the last of which was sent out to and rejected by 98 agents. Wow. We talk about Bonnie's husband asking her why she was continuing to send things out amidst all that rejection, repurposing stuff from past books in new ones, and the best advice she's ever been given. If you get stuck, make something happen. This episode of Write-Off is sponsored by The Novelry. The Novelry is one of the world's best-loved writing schools with more five-star reviews on Trustpilot than any other. With one-to-one coaching from best-selling authors, feedback from publishing editors, and step-by-step daily lessons to create, write, and complete your book. On the Classic Storytelling Foundation course, you'll build your story idea, looking at the ingredients of the best-selling novels of all time to come up with a story that's uniquely yours. On the 90-day novel course, you'll get that first draft done fast, with step-by-step daily guidance and one-to-one coaching from a published author. On the big edit, you'll work with a publishing editor to polish the second draft and beyond, taking the manuscript to publishing standard. The Novelry offers courses, coaching and community, a three-pronged approach to write and finish your novel. I'd just like to add that I myself have actually just started one of their courses, and it's such a wonderful community. Really fun, really engaged. I highly recommend it. Make this your year. Sign up at thenovelry.com today and discover the courses so many writers describe as life-changing. So let's listen to Bonnie.
0: When I was a young child, I well, for a long time I had a really terrible stutter. It lasted all the way really through I was still had it at university, Uh, not as bad as a child, of course, but I still had it. And so as a child, I was a little bit withdrawn, introverted, well, severely introverted, but I read all the time and I really loved stories. And I really, really at that time, you know, from the very beginning, wanted to be a writer. I thought it was probably the most incredible thing anyone could be. But I did write my very first book when I was five and it was only a page long And it was terrible. It had one character, no plot. My kids found it. They mocked me about this story, which I can say, it says it's a novel on the front, by the way. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And then I wrote another one when I was 12, but that was full length. And it was about 200 pages. And my- Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. My librarian put it in the school library and no one ever checked it out. I checked every day. No one ever read it. What was that about,
1: Bonnie? What was the 12-year-old you novel about?
0: Okay, that one, I remember the title. It was called Peanut Butter Anyone, which obviously is a great title, and that's just going to draw people in right away um anyway I don't don't know it sounds a little bit like are you
1: there god it's me Margaret it's a bit like (laughs) I don't know just a a generic question that everyone wants to answer
0: (laughs) yeah right I don't know I was I've always been addicted to peanut butter I'm sure it had something to do with that you know to be honest I don't really remember um what the whole plot was, but I just remember this one character who was constantly eating peanut butter and had trouble speaking, and it might have been related to my own stuttering now that I think about it, but at the time, I'd never drawn that conclusion. So, um, yeah, so that didn't go very well. And then after that, you know, I went to college, and I really wanted to be a writer, but I also needed to make a living, so I started out as a science writer, editor at a textbook company. And I worked there for about four years and I wrote uh, for other scientists basically, but I wouldn't say it went really well. <laughs> I mean, you can't use your imagination with science. You actually have to use the facts. And, um, and so I got in a little bit of trouble for redefining, reimagining things like the Krebs cycle and what that really was. And since this is going in a textbook, you really can't do that. Um, anyway, I didn't. I didn't stay at that job. I was there for about four years. And then I went into tech writing, still writing to make a living, paid twice as much, was twice as awful. And uh, I didn't stay in that for very long. And then I found copywriting, which I kind of, you know, part of it I really enjoyed um, because that is huge amounts of imagination that you you absolutely have to draw on every day. So that's really my background.
1: And so while you were doing these other jobs to pay the bills and some of them quite enjoying them and some of them absolutely not, were you also creative writing on the side?
0: I was doing, I started working on my very first serious novel, I think not until my 40s. I think, you know, during my 20s and 30s, I was getting, I was going back to school again, you know, getting another degree and I was I had little kids working full time, you know, I just really admire women who can write and hold a job and have a family and you know, do all of that stuff. Boy, that wasn't me. I was also rowing at the time. And that takes a huge amount of effort and energy out of the day. And I just, I I did work on things in my head, or I'd, I'd start things, but I couldn't finish anything.
1: Was it in your mind's eye that you would like to get back to writing I mean did you did you worry about time passing you by at all I mean I've just turned 40 actually and I um I I feel pretty happy about it I know and some some people think that you're not supposed to feel happy about it I do but I think it is a marker and you know certainly with my writing I do feel like oh gosh better better hurry up you know did you feel that way
0: Oh, I absolutely did. I think all of us, you know, we're all conditioned to think that there are these deadlines and timelines for us, whether or not they really exist. So I did feel that way at 40. Unbelievably, also at 40, I felt like I came into some superpowers of, you know, I would go to work and suddenly I was a lot more confident. It's almost like at 40, you go, oh, I guess I'm not going to take shit anymore after all. And I became much more vocal at work. And, uh, and, you know, it was really good for me, especially being a creative director and a copywriter, where you have to constantly defend your ideas and present your ideas. Most of my job, of course, was writing. And so for me, and I think for journalists and people, you know, people who write during the day, it's quite hard to come home and ask yourself to write during the night. <laughs> it's really hard. So I actually did decide in my 40s to go back and get an MFA in creative writing, which was ridiculous because I had to go fly to North Carolina and spend two weeks embedded in this course, in this MFA course for two years. And um, that's what it was, it was you know one of those long distance things, but you had to go twice a year. And with my job and everything, it was nearly impossible. Uh, and I didn't enjoy it at all, I didn't like the whole MFA culture it just it just didn't really fit what I was doing and who I was and um, and actually I ended up getting ill I had breast cancer and I was unable to complete my degree so you know once you're doing that you're really not going anywhere
1: (laughs) so yeah I'm so sorry that's a tough that's a tough interruption to the writing process well I'm glad that you're well hmm. now
0: Oh, thank you. Now, you know, at that time I was being asked actually to write about breast cancer for um, a research company that I was working for as a copywriter and creative director. And then I was diagnosed with breast cancer, which I thought, oh, anyway, no, it all turned out fine because in that MFA program, I had started a book. And in that book was my main character, Elizabeth Zott. But in that book, she was very minor and I really had no idea what I was going to do with her. And I shelved that book. I never went back to it. I, um, I wrote about half of it. And it just wasn't working out. And I think for a writer, it's okay when things don't work out. You have to get used to that.
1: Well, you say that with a lot of confidence, but I think learning to get used to that is, it's quite a thing. And also I'm very interested in the idea that Elizabeth Zott was not a protagonist because she is so protagonist-y. It's very hard to imagine her being subservient to any other character. What was she doing in this original iteration?
0: Well, she was, to tell you the truth, there are only five lines about her in that entire half of a book because Madeline was the protagonist and if someone's going to step up and take the role of Elizabeth Zott, it's going to be Madeline. And so mm-hmm. she was 30 years old in that book. And uh, and she had a daughter. And I really love the way it started out, you know, because she was she was just there on that very first page, just a tiny mention of her about this woman who had had a cooking show, and, but who had been a chemist. I don't know where that came from, honestly. Um, but anyway, it was in there. And so that's. That kind of fueled you know this next no it wasn't the next attempt it was the third attempt my lessons in chemistry is my third attempt at a novel right but yeah right. I mean so, I think, yeah
1: yeah so I want to come back a little later to the MFA and not enjoying that because I think that's really interesting and I know you later went on to do a Curse Brown courses so I want to in a little while look at the difference between those sorts of things but yes, tell us about this second book that you, that you actually finished. And mm-hmm. this is the one that you sent out, right? And yeah. um, which country were you in when you were sending this out for a start? Were you in the uh, US? In
0: the United States, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: And what was this book about? I should say, I should preface this with saying, you've mentioned in a few interviews that this actually had 98 rejections, which I think is inc- an incredible thing to tell people. And, you know, pretty amazing for people listening who are struggling with the idea that they might receive rejection, because that's quite a lot of it. So yeah, yeah. To tell us about what the book was about.
0: Well, um, you know, part of the book, well, the theme of the book is actually not understanding or knowing who or what you want to be. And it's exactly the opposite of lessons in chemistry where we have a protagonist who knows exactly who she is and knows exactly what she wants to do with her life. But I think a lot of people fall in the first category and it's a really big fear for people not to know what they should be doing with their lives. So that was really the theme of it and to tell you the truth, I'm going back and I'm robbing that book of some of the themes, and I'm putting it in this new book that I'm working on. So I won't go into too much detail about that, but I can tell you that uh, I sent it out to 98 agents. It took over a year to do that because you know you have to wait for the rejection before you keep sending it out. Um, and yeah, it was really hard. You know, I think. Even lowly writers have egos. And it's really hard to, to know that this work of yours that you've worked on for so long and so hard um, is just, it feels like a rejection of yourself. But in fact, it's not. And I think what writers really have to understand are two things. One thing is when an agent gets your query, they've also gotten 9,000 other queries. So it's really not personal. You know, they, they may not have even time to read it They may not have time. It may not quite fit what they're looking for. They may be completely full up of writers and they're not looking right then. You know, there are all sorts of reasons why you can be rejected that have nothing to do with your writing. I unfortunately was very naive and my second book was 700 pages long. And of course, I thought that was fine because, you know, A Little Life and and all these other books, The Goldfinch um Moby Dick those are all long and I hadn't really taken into account the business reasons for why you don't write especially as a debut novel a long book and so that was on me but it wasn't it wasn't made clear to me until I got a rejection from my last and final attempt at sending it out an agent wrote me back and her response to me was very harsh Um, she had actually asked to see the first. 10 or 20,000 words. And I sent them to her and she wrote back and she said, wow, you know, I love the voice. You write very well. But she basically said, you're a fool. You're an idiot. And you don't deserve to have this book read because you didn't do your homework. You cannot write a 700 page novel as a debut author. It's too expensive to print. No one knows who you are in Germany. It'll be 25% longer. What were you thinking? I mean, it was this. Yeah, it was. uh, So she instructed me in this email to write a book of appropriate length and she might take a look at it. I never sent it to her, but the next book was, was lessons in chemistry. So, you know, even though that was very harsh feedback, it was the right feedback to get. Mm,
1: yes. I mean, cruel to be kind feedback is useful. How long had it taken you to write that second book? And, and did the second um, book have a title, by the way?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's called Why to Be a Dog. Why to be a dog? Yeah, not how to be a dog, but why to be a dog. Wow. Um, some some yeah.
1: recurrent themes then.
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I get a feeling I'm going to be one of those writers who always has a dog in her book, not a thinking dog. This book, dog was not a thinking dog. Uh, in fact, this dog never appears in the book, really. Um, which I know sounds strange, but it's really just about the qualities of, 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 you know, what we should be aiming for as people. And so the theme was why to be a dog? Because I think sometimes dogs are a lot kinder than we are.
1: anyway uh how long had it taken you to write that book why to be a dog
0: I think that that one took 2001 I think it took about three and a half years uh we'd moved abroad and some of my work had had fallen away because we were abroad nine hours outside of my time zone of my clients um I was still working but it was quite difficult and so I had more time to write on the side, but I was still working. So it was this back and forth. Um, but yeah, I think that took about, about three years and I, gosh, I think that's right. Anyway. Um, and did when you enjoy got,
1: it were you, when you were writing it? Did you, were you enjoying that process and did you feel like you knew what you were doing vaguely?
0: You know, as a copywriter, you're always writing stories. I think that, So many great novelists have first been copywriters and you can see, you can see it in their work. You know, Amy Tan or Joseph Heller, Kurt Vonnegut, you know, all of these people were copywriters. James Patterson, you can see it because their ideas are very precise and concise. And that's what you have to do in copywriting. They also are all very entertaining writers because the first rule of copywriting is never to bore someone. So you do have to get your point across. You can't be deliberately too descriptive or anything like that because you find out pretty quick that um that, that is that bogs a book down. And so while I wanted a lot of darkness and light in my book, it's really important, it was really important for me to respect the reader and to realize they're gonna spend eight hours in me, with me. I got to keep this moving.
1: (laughs) Okay. I mean, that's interesting because I wanted to ask you about voice because Lessons in Chemistry has this very immediate, pithy, unique voice. Do you feel that that was developed then in your earlier work, that that voice to some degree was already there?
0: So again, as a copywriter, I would have to write in multiple voices all the time, for all of my clients, I wrote a lot of speeches, and when you write speeches for people, you have to pick up some of their intonations. And so it it's almost like people who learn to speak eight languages or ten languages. I learned to do various voices, um, and and that was you know just a huge help to me in uh, in imagining my own set of people because I will not base a character on a real person. To me, that's very confining. I, I don't write autobiographically. I really think it's important for me, at least, to develop all these characters in my head and then allow them to bloom on the page. And I think that's the best part, to have this imagination that you get, to, you get to just spill all over the page. And also, it's easier to control your characters if they're coming you know, from your heart and your brain, and you can see them in this wider world.
1: And so even though you write quite concisely and sounds like you were doing even with that long, you know, second book, the first that you sent out, were you, do you write in a way where it sort of pours out of you or are you, do you feel like those characters are sort of appearing quite easily? And, and do you do a lot of redrafting?
0: I do an enormous amount of redrafting. I think that's another thing from copywriting. You're always rewriting. You know, you're always thinking about your audience and I think it's really important to always think about this person who might be reading your book and to realize I go in every day when I sit down to write and I think the person I'm writing for may have had a bad day. They may be exhausted. They may be, you know, any number of things, but they've decided to, to take a chance on me and I can't let them down. And so I learned that kind of attitude really from, from copywriting and also from my own reading. I'm a huge reader and I always have been. And I love authors who take me along with them. And I always feel like I'm in good hands, as they say. Um, and I, I really appreciate that, that that someone is keeping their story in front of me in a way that makes sense, but that is also absolutely imaginative and revelatory. So in terms of the voice though of Elizabeth Zott, um, boy i don't know she just came to me in that voice i could hear her as somebody who was very rational somebody who was very fed up and somebody who was not going to settle anymore for what society has told her she has to be and so that voice just boom there it was it was really fun to write her believe me and it was mm. it was kind of astonishingly easy too because she's so direct and You know, once you have a character who just doesn't bend or who doesn't compromise rather, um, wow, that leads you in a lot of places. Mm -hmm.
1: And so you didn't know what she was going to do, but you sort of knew who she was.
0: Well, I I knew who she was. I knew that she was a chemist and she had a cooking show from that damn first book, you know, where she appears on the page for two seconds. And that idea never left me that there was this chemist who had a cooking show um, and in that book she had disappeared. And so I really wanted to know what her story was. And I'd had a really bad day at work one day. And when I uh, sat back down at my desk, instead of working on the deadline that I had that was looming over me, I felt like suddenly Elizabeth Zott was there. And I felt like she was saying, I've had a bad day too. But my bad day is so much worse than your bad day. (laughs) And that's what I wrote. I thought, wow. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, What the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: What a challenge, Elizabeth Zott. And I wrote that first chapter that day. So... um, <laughs> But, you know, in that chapter, I knew I started out, you know, she was the star. I had no idea what was going to happen after that first chapter, except that then I did write the last three lines of the book the same day. And I huh. never expected those to last. Never. But they were sort of like a target I had to aim for.
1: How fun. I might just read that opening paragraph, actually, because it- It's just so brilliant and it really is, like you just described, it's one of those opening paragraphs where you're immediately put in time and place, you know exactly where you are, who's taking you there, and you just feel completely taken care of as a reader. It's such a wonderful opening paragraph. Um, November 1961. Back in 1961, when women wore shirtwaist dresses and joined garden clubs and drove legions of children around in seatbeltless cars without giving it a second thought, back before anyone knew there'd even be a 60s movement, much less one that its participants would spend the next 60 years chronicling, back when the big wars were over and the secret wars had just begun and people were starting to think fresh and believe everything was possible, the 30-year-old mother of Madeleine Zott rose before dawn every morning and felt certain of just one thing her life was over. I mean, that paragraph, Bonnie, just has everything. It just, yeah, it has the who and the where and the what, and I just (laughs) love it. But I mean, we're talking about all this merrily now. um, And even when we talk about that second book that didn't make it, you you know, you're very sort of um, jolly. But just going back to that a wee bit, what did it feel like when you were in it? Because you're, you know, if you sent out 98 rejections in a year, you're sending them out a lot. What did that feel like when those passes, as they're um, benignly called in the world of publishing? Uh, what did those passes feel like? And, um, and what did you do when they came? Were you changing your submission at all? Or yeah, what was that? What was that time
0: like for you? Well, you know, to be honest, each, each rejection is a body blow it's a blow to your ego. It's a blow to your confidence. You know, I was writing for all these kind of some very famous people and they were trusting me to come up with their voice or their, their ideas that I had to do in a speech or a campaign or, or whatever. But then I felt like I wasn't good enough, that my own voice wasn't good enough. And so when those rejections came in, it was pretty tough. I mean, and it lasted for a very long time because I just kept going. I have this idea that for every writer, persistence is ninety percent of this game. Ten percent is horrible too. <laughs> the other ten percent, <laughs> I don't know. You know, people say, "Oh, don't don't you love being a writer?" No, it, it's really hard work. It's not fun. Um, you know, I love being in my own story, but there's no guarantee anyone else is going to like my story. And so it is. You do feel like. It's some sort of review of who you are. And that's very hard for writers. Um, I hear from writers who say, well, I'm quitting. I was rejected five times. Well, you can't quit after five times. You can take a, a break. And if you can think of it this way, which is how I started to think of it. When you take a break, you're not really quitting. You're just refueling. You just have to let your engine cool off a little bit and then go back into the game because Only you get to decide when it's over, not a publisher, not an agent, only you get to decide that. And if you keep going and you keep refining your work, you will have a novel out there and it will do very well, but you just have to hang with it. It's just horrible. And I feel sorry for every single writer has to write a query or even worse, a synopsis. I mean, it's just (laughs) a nightmare on top of the novel itself. And so when people tell me or say to me, oh, you must really be having fun writing these books. I think, no, I mean, I wish I could report that it's fun. But when you're writing about difficult things and dark topics, it's not fun to do that. But it's also not fun to find out that somebody else doesn't like what you're doing. Um, The great thing for me is that being in copywriting, being in science writing, being in tech writing, there's tons of rejection. If If there's one thing I'm pretty good at, it's taking feedback, and it's also shielding myself, girding my loins for the latest you know, dismissal of my work. Um, and as a creative person in advertising, you just have to be prepared for that. In the advertising, though, I could share it with my director, my producer, or the account representative. When you're a novelist, there's no one to share it with but your soul, and that soul gets a little bit battered. So mm. after 98 rejections, And I I remember I said to my husband, I got number 98 today. And that was the one where the woman said, basically, who do you think you are? And he said, why are you going forward with this? How many more (laughs) do you need? And I said, I I was going to go for a hundred. And he said, that seems like a really odd goal to have. And that was the day I stopped sending it out. Um, hilariously, I will tell you that agent who wrote me that rather stern email, um, turns out that she had really wanted to sign lessons in chemistry. Oh, wow. <laughs> she, she doesn't know it's me. She has no idea. It's the same person. Um, but yeah, I, I heard that through the grapevine. Um, but anyway, so I would say, you know, for writers, oh, my God, yeah, I feel your pain. It is horrible. But you can get through it. Take a deep breath have confidence in yourself, read over your stuff, read everything out loud. If you're enjoying it, I'm just betting everyone else is going to enjoy it too. But be tough on yourself and criticize your own writing first.
1: So when you look back on that second book, can you see that were there other things wrong with it other than its length? Or did it deserve to be out in the world in the way that it was? It's just that you were an unknown quantity at
0: that point. Oh, that's a really good one. You know, honestly, I reread that book and I stand behind 80% of that book. <clears throat> the other 20% is the editor and me going, you know what, let me just go in and rewrite this whole scene and do this. The ideas in the book, I think are really strong. And I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to take some of those ideas and put them in my new book. And I I loved the voice of that book. You know, if people like Elizabeth Zott and her unrelenting uncompromising attitude they might also like this protagonist who's more like, God, what the hell am I doing? you know which I think a lot of people can relate to and I think his approach to life and his uncertainty is really endearing, but it's also something that we all share. he faces a lot of rejection how does he deal with it and and by the way, it is a man so um, that part of it I don't know I think. I have never had anyone read the book, except for my husband who loved it. Now my husband's very critical. It sounds like, oh yeah, sure your husband loved it, but actually he's my number one reader and he's extremely critical. Um and he's very well read. But I can't get anyone else to read it. Not an agent, not an editor, no one. No one has ever expressed interest. I've brought it up a thousand times. So my feeling is okay, um. I'm going to go back, I'm going to take some of those ideas and put it in this next book, which will be book 3.5. I think of my books as, yeah. And um, and I'm just going to see how that, how that flows. Because now I do have other ideas that I want to incorporate that I'm really interested in and excited about. So in a way, it's okay that no one's read it. And another way, I just think, I can't believe you people. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I've interviewed people on this podcast who some who have um, become better known and and or the climate has changed. And so a book that didn't make it first time round then makes it in its essentially original self, uh, which I think is interesting. And then I've also spoken to quite a few people who have resurrected characters or themes from previous books and sort of popped them in a new place and seen what they do there because you know when characters I remember saying in the very first episode of this podcast actually when you've when you've spent a lot of time with characters and they don't make it to publication it feels a little bit like a death so they you know you want them to live and then they sort of can't in the way that they should and so it's nice to give them a second life I guess but it'll be really interesting to see what happens with your with your new book then and and what the dog is like
0: <laughs> well you know it is it is yeah it's it's really interesting to me too because I don't plan anything out when I write I don't map anything out I don't have an outline and so even if I take something from this other book it has it it's reblooming, but it's a different flower. That's a bad, that's a bad analogy, but that's what it feels like. Oh God. <laughs> um, well, let's go
1: to, so you, you moved to Britain, you did the Curtis Brown course and you'd written a fair bit of lessons in chemistry at this point, mm-hmm. right? But then your daughter told you about the Curtis Brown course. And what was that like? Cause you said earlier that you didn't really enjoy your MFA program in the States. How did, I think you did enjoy Curtis Brown, right? So how, why do you think that was?
0: Well, I I should just say, and, and I, the, nothing against Curtis Brown or any writing course, but I don't think writing courses have anything to do with writing. They have everything to do with a community of writers. Yeah. I think writers get support from each other and because we're all alone every day doing what we do, um, it's just nice to know that somebody else is going through the horror that, you know, that you've taken on and that you share these problems together of, of plot and tone and, you know, whether or not we should be using adverbs or not. It's, it's really great. And then, of course, all the rejection everybody goes through. So I don't think writing courses teach you how to write. I think you teach you how to write if you're a really good reader, a strong reader. And luckily, you know, I'm writing all day at work. I get a lot of practice. Um, writing is practice, you're not going to learn it in six weeks in a course. So for me, Curtis Brown was absolutely amazing, because I had written about three quarters of lessons in chemistry, and I was just done. After my last experience with the 98 rejections, I was pretty sure I wouldn't be able to finish this book. And as it turned out, we had been living We living in Seattle. Then we were in Switzerland for six years. Then we were transferred to Britain. And it just felt like I've been moving my entire life. I move, it feels like every few years or so. And I just felt like I couldn't do another move. And I didn't want to finish my book or anything. And my daughter sent me this link to an online course at Curtis Brown. And that course title was Right to the End of Your Novel. So she kind of challenged me. She goes, come on, mom. Write to in your novel. It's online, you know. So I took the course, and um, and in it, Anna Davis says this really wonderful thing that got me out of my rut and made me felt I, I think I was feeling sorry for myself, you know, moving again and blah, 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 and still working full time, and I was just really kind of tired of everything. And um, I was stuck in my book, and she says in this course, which is pre-recorded, she says, if you get stuck, make something happen. And I realized it was sort of like advice for life, right? Um, But I could, it was supposed to be writing advice, but it was really advice for my life, make something happen. And so I sat down and I just wrote a whole new scene that just went sideways into where I was going. And actually, you know what, I ended up not keeping that, but that got me out of my rut. And I was able to keep writing because of those words. and I thought it was such profound advice. <laughs> so um, I ended up taking their in-person course. And I did that because I'd only been in London a month or so, and I didn't know anyone. Um, and my husband was traveling constantly. So I was pretty much alone in a huge city for the billionth time, not knowing anyone. And so I took the in-person course. And in it, I met 14 other writers who were also working full time and who were you know not not feeling great about their work and it was it was i don't know it's like this therapeutic thing we come together once a week and we would hear each other's words you know you don't hear very much of a book in these courses you can't you're hearing 2000 words or whatever a book is 80,000 to a in my case 115,000 words um, you're only getting a snapshot of their writing. But what you don't, what you do get is a much broader picture of their own problems and their own suffering and how they're dealing with it. And that is worth the price of admission to get this community going and have the support from other people.
1: Yes, I did the writing a novel course with Faber, Faber Academy, and I felt exactly the same. And it just lended a bit of gravitas and um, focus to the whole experience and I just I, I absolutely loved it it was one of the best times of my life honestly I mean it was just I I, and I agree it was you know you, you still have to do the writing you have to teach yourself to write but it's it's such an enjoyable experience if you're able to do something like that and meet people doing the exact same thing yeah. so I know that I know that your course um, led you to your agent because um, a lot of these courses have Um, Access provide access to agents at the end of them, don't they? And and you met your Mm -hmm. agent Felicity Blunt at the end of your course. Um, And I was reading in an interview that um, two nights before, I think before you sent it out, um, before you sent out lessons in chemistry to publishers, she said, tell me if this is right. She said, you know, I love your book, but I've no idea how it's going to do. So don't get your hopes up. Which, I mean, you know, a few days later, it was in a 16-way auction. I think this is fascinating. And I wonder if you can tell me more about that, if you understand what she meant. Because to me, I mean, we've just read that opening paragraph. It's a zinger. It feels very obvious that it's going to do well. But I wonder, agents are never really sure, are they? They don't always know exactly. So I wonder if we could talk about that a bit.
0: Yeah, thank God that Felicity said that. This is what I love about her. She doesn't get your hopes up, you know, because she knows that the market may not have anything to do with you or, or the quality of your work. You know, I, I really appreciated that night when she called me and said, you know, let's just, you know, take a moment and say, okay, we like what we have here. But it doesn't mean anyone else is going to like it. She has this streak of realism and, you know, just certainty about how the market actually works it's the whole thing is subjective you know if we were in software it wouldn't be subjective you would be testing and testing and testing until you knew whether it worked or not but writing isn't like that painting isn't like that you put it out and you hope for the best but you don't know if it's going to resonate with people and i was concerned of course that it wouldn't but you know i was just so grateful to have an agent who believed in the book and who I never had to query because I met her at Curtis Brown. And I just, for me that I would gotten already much further than I thought I could go. Um, and so I just thought, you know, you, we have to trust that somebody out there might like it. And if they don't, they don't, because you know what, if they don't, I've been down that road before and I know how big the bumps are, but I also know I can get over those bumps. Um, This will not kill me if it gets rejected.
1: How fascinating, how fascinating to feel that way. Because I think, I mean, two, well, like two and a half books in and if that, so if that had not sold, you would have felt okay. And you would have just got to work again.
0: Well, I knew that I would suffer. I knew that I would suffer, but I also knew that I would get past that suffering and, You know, suffering should not define you. It's one of the reasons why Elizabeth Zott wears a pencil in her hair, because she suffers a lot in her book, but a pencil has an eraser on one end of it. And you can definitely erase some of the things that have happened in your life. It doesn't mean they go away. You can still see the faint outline of what happened, but it doesn't define you. So I would just say to any writer, it's okay to fail. Just keep your head up. Keep your head up. I know it's really, really hard. Um, but you just have to, you don't have any other choice. All writers must persevere. That is the only course of action for every single writer.
1: Do you have any practical advice for what to do with yourself when those rejections come rolling in? I should just add here that obviously in the case of Lessons in Chemistry, that did not happen. It went to a massive auction. It sold <laughs> for like a Brazilian bucks and then it um is now being made into an apple tv show with brie larson as elizabeth sod so you know happy days for you um but i wonder if you can yes offer some advice some practical advice about when you're in that kind of immediate place of rejection and i'm interested in this when my book didn't sell I thought I was doing really well because I made this podcast (laughs) and I thought, great, I've moved on. I'm doing, actually, I, I, when I look back at it now, I don't think I had really given myself time to feel really bad about it. It took me a long time to start writing again. And I wonder if, yes, if we can touch on that a little bit, if you have any thoughts as to as to what what, the best way forward when you've had 98 rejections or however many.
0: Well, There's a point in the book where Elizabeth Zott makes brownies for dinner. And we, I have this sort of tradition in our family. uh, When the going gets tough, I make something called desperation brownies. I don't even like to cook, but I can make brownies. And um, so we have, you know, for, I don't know, the last 20 years, uh, when we have a bad day, instead of making dinner, we make desperation brownies. And that's what we call them, by the way. Um, So there were a lot of desperation brownies during those 98 rejections. That's how I, you know, if I am really sad, uh, I do two things. I, um, I erg, (laughs) believe it or not. um, And I eat brownies. Um, Yeah. I mean, other people do other things, right? You know, you just, you have to find what kind of works for you. And, and I won't say that it's, it's a cure. It's not a cure for feeling bad, but, it helps. (laughs) So also the the other thing is um, this is going to sound really weird, but every year I write a Christmas newsletter um, just for my friends. And it, you know, it's a sort of thing um, that people send out and say, here's what the family's been up to. But our, ours is never, you know, Oh, little Jimmy won you know, first place or whatever. Ours is more like, here's the shitty year we had top this. And, um, and it's gotten really this, huge following. Um, Well, huge just amongst my friends. I I don't send it out to anyone who doesn't know us as a family. Um, But it's really interesting. If someone on our list doesn't get the newsletter, they'll contact me immediately. You know, like, where's the newsletter? I found out that of the people on this list, at least a third had saved everyone for over 25 years or 30 years. They've saved every single one. I had no idea that anyone would. And so that sort of gave me confidence that there were a lot of people out there who are really interested in, you know, the fact that I could tell these stories about my family in a very short newsletter format. Um, And that kind of kept me going, is that kind of writing of, here's what our family did. What did your family do? Um, So that sounds a little bit strange, but honestly, uh, that was the positive feedback from people. Although, you know, occasionally, some of the people would read the newsletter, and say, "Oh, she made the whole thing up," and it would really, really piss me off because I never make <laughs> anything up in our newsletter. I mean, it is the unvarnished truth of all the hideous things that everybody else tries to hide, and I think that's why people <laughs> like to read it. You know, because sure. we're more like. You want to see how bad it gets? I mean, I wrote about how many rejections I got in one of the newsletters. And there are a couple of people said, oh, I don't even believe you've written a book.
1: Wow. <laughs> know. That's a strange response. <laughs> I know it was. Take them, take them off the newsletter list.
0: <laughs> yeah, I actually I did take that one person off. Um, but yeah, yeah. So anyway, you know, that's sort of how I kept my head up the whole time. But, you know, in terms of it selling like this, We were all shocked. Felicity was shocked. I was shocked. Um, And then she very quickly went into agent mode where she just was this rock for me. And I could depend on her to give me really good advice and lead me the right ways. And that was really, really helpful.
1: Has it been strange being catapulted into this world of success? I mean, like we were saying before I started recording, you you've basically been on nonstop tour and interviewing for the last several months. Is it, is it been odd? And Are, you, are yeah. you finding time and ability to write during this crazy process?
0: Oh, it, the, the time to write has shrunk down to nearly nothing and that's been very disturbing to me. Um, but, you know, the people I used to write for, a lot of these people are kind of famous and I used to watch their lives on the other side of the camera and never, oh my God, sometimes I think back And I think, you know, I would say to them before they went on camera or before they had to give a speech, now just be yourself. And now I just feel I hear that people say that to me all the time. Now just be yourself. And you think uh, it's really different when you're in front of an audience. (laughs) Um, I was really nervous, of course, at the very beginning um, doing these interviews and talking to people. And I think part of it was that I had no experience. I was only ever on the other side of things. I've now gained true appreciation. For what other people have to do all the time and I'm a lot more humble about how eat how hard or easy it is to be oneself um, in public because I you know it is an indictment of who you are if someone decides they don't like you that is a direct indictment so yeah it's been it's it's been a wild ride but you know readers have been wonderful to me really wonderful.
1: Thank you so much for listening to Write-Off. Do come find me to chat on Twitter, where I'm at Francesca Steele, and Instagram, where I'm at Francesca Steele Writes. I'll put that in the show notes. If you enjoyed Write-Off, please do share it with others, and please, please, please consider leaving a review on the iTunes app, which really helps other people find the podcast. Thanks, and see you next time.